the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to mention that um, if, you feel, if you're enjoying the show and you feel so inclined, um, could definitely use the financial support at, at, on Patreon. You can find me at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. That's for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour and uh, with a lot of the uncertainty that's going on financially, uh, could definitely use uh, support if, if you have the money to spare and, and feel so inclined. But I'm I'm very excited today. We have we've got Neil Gorman from the From Seventy Eight podcast joining me. And uh, first, we should give a shout out to Adam of Red Library for uh, for introducing us and and uh, helping get us all aligned and and you know, basically helping contribute to the podcast happening. So it is my pleasure. Neil, uh, to be thanks on so much podcast. for joining me. I've listened to it for a while and it is a podcast that I look forward to whenever it comes out. It kind of jumps near to the top of my nice. list, if not to the top of my list. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, I, I, I really do appreciate it. Hopefully uh, you find Definitely it do. some value in it of some kind. Um, but yeah, maybe let's uh, tell me a little bit about, I guess we'll just start out with uh how did you, what motivated you to get your podcast going? And So I do two different podcasts kind of right now. Uh, the first one is called Inform Podcast. And the idea of that podcast started out, I don't know, I'm trying to remember here, a, a while back. I just decided that I wanted to make a podcast and I, I figured I would talk about things in an informal way that I hoped would be informative to people. And for the first season of that podcast which was somewhere around 20-some episodes. It was just me talking into a microphone about different things. And when I did that, I kind of learned how to do podcasting. I learned how to you know, get a good microphone and record audio levels the right way, so on and so forth. The first episodes probably sound atrocious. I, I have not gone back and listened to yeah, them because <laughs> I'm not that kind of a masochist currently. Yeah. You know, and then um, uh, <laughs> right. after I, I did that for a while, it kind of it, it went to the back burner as just things started happening in life. I got really busy and I had a former student of mine named Jared and he had found some value in some of the things that I did. And uh, we had stayed in contact, even though he was not a student of mine a- anymore. And uh, I, at one point I said to him like, hey, you know, that it might be more fun to do that as a conversational kind of podcast where it's you and me talking about things. And I, 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 now I remember this actually. He was, we were both talking about how much we enjoyed the podcast Why Theory, the Todd McGowan, Ryan Ingley podcast. And uh, they take a lot of psychoanalytic theory and they apply it to, you know, film and they apply it to, to culture, but they're not talking as clinicians. 
because neither, as far as I know, neither of them are clinicians. And Jared was like, it would be really cool if there was something similar to that in terms of format. It's it's this extremely non-pretentious, very approachable, very listenable kind of podcast. But if it was done with more of like a clinical angle, and I was like, well, if you want to, we could give it a shot. And so at this point, I think we've done two episodes that we've released, and I think we have a third one that we're kind of in the uh, back-end editing process on right now. And then that one should be out pretty soon. So that's the one podcast I do. The second one is called From 78. And it's a podcast about people in time. Uh, I was born in 1978. I'm almost 42 right now. I'll be 42 in a couple of weeks. And being of that age, I felt like I was kind of in this weird, like, ex-lineal kind of age cohort where I kind of had one foot in Generation X and I had another kind of foot in the millennial generation. But being in that weird spot, I didn't feel like I really right. belonged to either. I, I didn't think I was a millennial, certainly didn't feel like it. And I didn't feel really that much like a Gen Xer. Like I would call myself that, but I always felt as if I was being slightly disingenuous whenever I did. Um, but it was weird because I can you know, remember a huge portion of my life was a life that didn't have things like GPS or broadband internet or Netflix or just all these things that have become really ubiquitous, right? Um, it, certainly people with, with cell phones, that was not something that was gone. No one in my high school, as far as I know, had a cell phone. If you had a pager, you know, and they saw you with a pager, the dean would confiscate it because <laughs> they thought you were using it for nefarious reasons or whatever. Um, so that was that was one part of my life. But I was also young enough that when the internet you know, started to become not just something which was for a pretty small kind of subculture and started to become more this thing that everybody was using all the time for all sorts of different stuff. I was very much around for that too. Uh, I could, I, I remember when the first iPhone came out and I remember when that first um, weird looking Android phone came out and so on and so forth. And And one of the things that I notice a lot is that there are people who I, I speak to because I'm, I'm a university professor, so I speak to a lot of people who are significantly younger than I am. I also get to speak to people who are significantly older than I am. Right. And it seems as though the people who are older are very frequently kind of like ragging on and dismissing millennials. They're like, oh, millennials don't, can't, they can't do anything because if, unless there's an app. They say tons of disparaging things. And I, I see millennials speaking pretty disparagingly about like boomers and sometimes Gen Xers too. And about how they just don't understand certain things. And I had this idea that if you, um, I kind of, if you imagine this in your mind's eye here, if you imagine like a, a curve and at the far left end of the curve, you draw like a stick figure, then you draw a stick figure in the middle and a stick figure at the far end. And um, I thought that was a good model for this, right? I'm the stick figure in the middle. There's people who are older than me and they're maybe the people who are at the far uh, left end of that. They've lived longer than I have. They can see further into the past than I can. If they look over the horizon, they can see into a past that I didn't live through. And likewise, people at the top of it, at the right, those are millennials, and they're going to probably live longer than I do, and they can probably imagine and see a future that I can't see. And so what I'm trying to do with that podcast is talk to people and say, like, hey, look over your horizon, you know, either into the future that I won't be able to see because I'll be dead, or look into your past that... I can't see because I wasn't around for it. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about what we see over those horizons. And my hope is that as I, I do this, it'll lead to interesting conversations. I don't really have much of a plan for it other than that. Um, 
uh, it tends to lately, I think a lot of the conversations on that particular podcast have been more political in nature, talking a lot about that. Uh, I think it's just kind of a, the time that we're living in right now. Uh, we've talked, I've talked to people about other things too. And then occasionally I'll just do like a, I call them an audio essay where I'll just sort of like talk about something that, that I think was an important moment in, in my own life for some reason. And uh, it's not a very popular podcast. <laughs> it has very, very few subscribers, and I'm fine with that. Uh, but it's really fun to do. And so those are the two podcasts that I'm currently working on. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I kind of fall um, a bit younger than you, but I think I kind of fall on that sort of. I'm, I guess, technically, I'm pretty solidly millennial by a couple of years. But you know what I mean? It's so weird. Like, it feels like depending on whom you ask or what source, you know, I'm pushes me either like on that threshold of Gen X or or kind of solidly mm-hmm. in millennial specific but so I can I can kind of relate I remember uh I had I built my first PC and had like a 33.6 <laughs> like kilobit yep. per second modem and, and shit way back in the day and would like uh so I overnight I download mm-hmm. my like, MP3s it was kind of like it whenever Napster was still a thing so I like Unplug the phone line, you know, parents' phone line at night, <laughs> get my queue going of like MP3s that I wanted to have download overnight. And then, yeah, because that, that reconnect time was probably taking morning. like an hour or longer potentially to download. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't even remember. My, yeah. uh, my very first computer that was like a computer that I wasn't sharing with my family was a 286. And, and it, it booted up with a five and a quarter inch floppy drive into DOS. Yeah, right. So I would uh, oh, I would call up BBS <laughs> systems and D dials, and so I'd be you know ATDT attention telephone dial tone. Then you'd type in a phone number, and uh, I remember my parents being really uh, irritated because their phone bill started to get higher than they wanted it to be because I was making phone calls with a computer and a modem, which I think was like a twenty eight hundred baud modem. You know, which is, I mean, like now oh, you yeah. hear that, it's just, it seems <laughs> nice. so crazy. It's it's archaic, right? You know, but at the yeah. time it was cutting edge. Right. And some of the, the first it, online life then was great because all the people who I was talking to were people who lived relatively kind of close to me. And then they would have these uh, parties. You know, somebody would post a thing saying they're going to have a, a party and, you know, this is where it was at and, you know, bring this stuff or whatever. And. I would go and I mean, I was an underage kid hanging out with people who were oftentimes older than me and had access to things that I didn't have access to. And it was a blast. It was, it was a really fun way to grow up. Nice. So you have to, what, uh, so whenever you would dial in, like what, what did you, like, what was kind of the, cause that, that's even before, like, what did you, was like Netscape yeah, it wasn't, it was Navigator, all text. even it was all in, yeah. So um, it was all text. The, the main system I called was uh, it was a, called a D dial, uh, which D stood for I think Dasham, who was the guy who made it. And it, so at the time, you would call in. You'd have to call sometimes a lot because there was this guy named Scott had a an Apple two E in his house, and he had six phone lines coming into this thing. <laughs> and if you were if you dialed at the right time, you'd get one of the phone lines, Holy and you could shit. talk to five other people. Uh, seven if he was using the the apple itself to talk Ah, that was as many as it could handle and uh so that's just kind of how people kept in touch and then you'd get i mean you'd get to know people that way and like i said you'd kind of hang out and meet people 
uh, you'd get people's phone numbers and stuff. And then, yeah, you'd just, you'd get called and people had pagers, you'd page people. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And then eventually, I mean, I, I, I didn't stay with that. I eventually I got something better than a 286. And yeah, I mean, like at the time, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. the next computer I had ran windows 3.1. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't even know if it had Netscape on it, to tell you the truth. Uh, it might have, but I, I can't remember if it did. Yeah, I can't remember how when the first Netscape Navigator was around. Probably like, ni- I don't know, it sounds like about 91, right. yeah. 92, mm-hmm. probably. I remember I was in a, an English class in high school. So let me think here. This would have been about 92. And I think it was my sophomore year, junior. Yeah, maybe that uh, sounds about right. And I had to write a research paper, and I remember the teacher uh, saying, are any of you planning on using, and he did the air quotes, the internet to, as, as a research tool. And he was <laughs> saying it in a way like he was scoffing at it, right? He thought, like, anybody who does that clearly doesn't yeah. know what they're doing. Like, don't even try it. It's it's That's stupid. Go your ass to a library and, like, do something for real. <laughs> um, which is funny to think about now, because I, I think I was... I might've been the only person in that room who put my hand up at the time. And he was just like, no, you're not, you're not right. doing that. <laughs> not allowed. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird too. Cause like the early internet was pretty much all kind of, you know, it was like mm-hmm. people, you know, universities, yeah. a lot of research was going on. Like that's kind of what probably like before yeah, the first 90s web browser and, was linked, which you know, was a, still, a like text it, only web browser. <laughs> I uh-huh. You're, and my you're first digging email well beyond me there. <laughs> Pine yeah, sounds that was a the, there was an internet service provider in my area called Inner Access. So you'd you'd dial into that, and then you'd be in a in um a Unix shell, and you'd type. Uh, Pine was the email system, so it was all text based email. And then Usenet, Usenet was what I was going to gotcha. use when I was going to research for my paper. Uh, uh, that was going to be my big ace in the hole, yeah. but apparently the teacher thought you, you use net use groups do not count as valid research sorts of things. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, but it, anyhow, mo- moving on, the reason that I have brought Neil on today is Neil is a, is a fellow fan of, uh, Jacques Lacan. And so, uh, Neil very much interested in both the the theoretical Lacan, but also in kind of taking some of the Lacanian concepts and applying them uh, in a sort of not exactly as an analyst, but right, I, right. I'll we talked about you that in our our pregame. Describe a how bit. you it's, kind it's of a weird put those. Topic. So I yeah. think that one of the things that makes the Lacanian world of psychoanalysis different than the rest of the world of psychoanalysis, and certainly different than the rest of the world of psychotherapy is what somebody does to become an analyst. There's a very, very different procedure there. So um, my, from what I've been able to kind of piece together, I haven't done this, so I'm, I'm not speaking from experience here. If somebody wants to become a, a non-Lacanian psychoanalyst, what they'll probably do is find a psychoanalytic institute, uh, and they'll do this after they have acquired some kind of valid mental health license, whether that's like a, a social worker, a counselor, a psychologist, et cetera. And then what they'll do is they'll apply to get into the Psychoanalytic Institute. And if they get in, they will study for a period of time. It seems like four to five years is pretty normal to become a full-on psychoanalyst. Most institutes also have programs, which are like two-year programs, which teach people how to be do psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Uh, and But to do the full-on analyst thing, you have to be there for longer. You have to study more stuff. 
the programs there tend to consist of some book learning, right, where you're going to show up and do a kind of class thing where you, you read and discuss what you read and write, do that sort of thing. You usually start with Freud and then work your way through some of the other schools of psychoanalytic thought. So that would be object relations, self-psychology, uh, ego psychology, etc., and some institutes are very steeped in a particular tradition. Uh, so there's some that are very self-psychological. There are some that are very interpersonal, so on and so forth. And you have to go through your own analysis while you're doing that, too. So you have to go and find an analyst, and then you have to go and present yourself to them to, to be analyzed. And that's a process that takes uh, – I it's from the stuff that I've seen when I've looked around, I think most people say that it's an ongoing process, but – for the sake of becoming an analyst, they think it has to last for at least two years. And they have different requirements for what constitutes a legitimate analysis. Some people, some institutes want you to go more than one time a week. Some would say one time a week is fine. There's one institute here in Chicago, the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis, that actually doesn't uh, do anything with that. They just want you to say that you're doing it, and that's it. And as long as you're doing it, they say it's your business. Other institutes have more stringent requirements. And then you eventually get to the point where you start seeing patients as a training and not as a training analyst, as an analyst in training and you have a supervisor and they will supervise you through a couple of cases. And then once you've done all that, and that's a very expensive endeavor, right? That takes a lot of time and a lot of money to do that. You can graduate and become an analyst is what it comes down to. So in the Lacanian world, for, for anybody who doesn't know this, is Lacan, one of his, his big, he was kicked out of the International Psychoanalytic Association in 1963. They, they said, no, you're, you're, you're done, man. Like, you can't do this because he was doing things that they didn't approve of and he was not willing to stop doing those things. And I can talk more about what those things were, were and why he didn't want to stop doing them maybe later. Um, but he had, Lacan had the idea that psychoanalysis had gone from being something which was a cutting-edge way of treating people, which was separate, separated from the various uh, kind of like institutions of power and control, like the university and um, like the medical establishment. And, and he thought it had become, become kind of co-opted by those very establishments that it had broken away from. And he thought that that wasn't good. And so when he established his school... Uh, he said the the most important thing about the formation of an analyst is that the analyst authorizes him or herself to be an analyst. And now it's, I mean, you, usually when I say that, like the, the, I get a kind of a chuckle from people and they think, oh, in that case, like anybody could do it. And I guess that's one way to look at it. The way that Lacan talked about it uh, was that authorizing yourself to be an analyst is actually not that, that simple. If you think about it, um, well, and I, I, as I mentioned before, I teach. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of people, a lot of the students who I, I teach, have uh, some major imposter syndrome when they just start becoming licensed psychotherapists. They, they're like, do I really know enough to be doing this? And that would mean that they, they don't authorize themselves. And, and this is another part of the idea here. Like, you, can, you could say that you authorize yourself at, at any time, for sure. Anybody could say that. That is a fundamentally yeah. different thing than kind of like in your bones actually believing that you are capable of being an analyst. And the only way that you get to the point where you can authorize yourself is by going through analysis yourself for however long it takes for you to go through analysis. 
having some in the Lacanian world, we call it control or supervision. So I might use those terms interchangeably and, you know, doing your own study in, in various ways. And it's a, it's a very non-directed thing. Like there isn't a single curriculum for it. Uh, Lacan believed in these things, he called them cartels, which were, you know, groups of about five that would get together uh, w- because they had a similar interest in something that they wanted to learn about, and they would learn together for a period of no more than two years. And then you'd go into a new cartel, ultimately. But uh, all of this stuff was something that Lacan was trying to, to get away from this idea that just because there's a, a an institution, an institute, a university, a, a medical school or whatever... They can authorize you to do certain things clearly, right? Like that's that's obvious. Like a university can give you a diploma, um, uh, a licensing board can give you a license. All of that stuff clearly exists. But even if you get those things, that doesn't mean that you're an analyst. It doesn't mean that you're equipped to do psychoanalysis. It doesn't mean that you care about psychoanalysis. It doesn't mean anything. He said the only person who can actually authorize you to be an analyst, to call yourself an analyst, and to go out and start practicing psychoanalysis is you. I cannot authorize you to do that. <laughs> it's not possible. And so Lacanian training is centered, I think, around the formation of the analyst and, and eventually the analyst being able to authorize themselves to practice psychoanalysis. So when we were talking before, the question came up is, you know, am I an analyst? Do I have a, a license to be a psychoanalyst? No. Do I have a license to be a clinical social worker? Yes. Um, do I have uh, some fancy piece of paper from a psychoanalytic institute that says that I've studied to be a psychoanalyst? No. Um, have I gone through my own analysis? I have, and I, I keep going. I'm not done. I'll probably do it for as long as I'm able to. And uh, I keep on learning about psychoanalysis. And do I call myself an analyst today? I do. And uh, you know, some people might think that I'm okay to authorize myself and use that title, and other people would say that I probably have no business doing so. And regardless, I decide to call myself an analyst because I believe that I practice psychoanalysis. Right on. Um, <clears throat> what? Uh, how did you even, I guess, to even back up further, like how did you stumble upon Lacan or psychoanalysis from the first point? Like what was your kind of entry um, Okay, so I'll give one? you a, it, it's a long story, but I'll make the first part of it very brief. Um <laughs> When I was uh, when sure. I got done with high school, I was somebody who was interested in a slew of different things. I really did not know what I wanted to do with my life. I was having a very hard time choosing that, like what I would dedicate the time and energy to once I got to a university to study. And in, on top of that, I didn't act, my my family didn't have money, and I didn't have money, uh, so I had to go to a community college, which was in many ways a blessing in disguise because at a community college, you don't have to declare a major; you just sort of take your general education, and that's that. So I went to a community college because that's what I could afford, not knowing what I wanted to do. I was there for three years. The first year, I took classes in everything I thought that might I might be interested in. So I took classes in acting and astronomy and uh, philosophy and a bunch of stuff and discovered that I wasn't interested in those things, actually. <laughs> um, but one of the things I was interested in was history. I really liked history a lot. So when I was done three years later... I went to a state school here in Illinois, Northern Illinois University, because uh, again, doesn't cost a lot of money, and I could could go there and make it work. Is that the wolf, uh, is they, that the, the, wolf the huskies? Pack? Or am I? So it looks kind of wolfish. Huskies, yeah. okay. 
Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Maybe that's um, why. Yeah, it's it's a it's in a weird town called DeKalb, which I think is a a word that means a place so cold and shitty that no one will even bother. Um, but it it's really <laughs> serious in the middle of like Nowhereville, Northern Illinois. But it was a nice place to go. Uh, I went there, studied history, uh, studied labor history in particular. That turned into the thing that I I really got into and that's kind of where i think i started to become more political as well is in that that process and then i did that for right. for three years because it was two years to finish my degree and then i did a third year to get teacher certified because i thought like what am i going to do with this you know we're good and people are going to tell me that they want you know to supersize their fries and i can talk to them about history or something so <laughs> i got a, a history uh <laughs> a teaching certification and so i could teach middle school and high school and I went and I did that. And at the time, since I was a guy, uh, they they wanted to send me to the, the like self-contained classrooms where the air quotes bad kids were. And I did that for a while. And eventually that led to working in what are called therapeutic day schools or alternative schools. And as I was doing this, I mean, it was, it was not the easiest work. And I had a stepbrother and my stepbrother was getting a master's in social work and he was going to be a school social worker. And so we were working with kind of the same kids, but I was a teacher and he was a social worker. And I was looking at what he was doing. And I was like, that looks like it's more fun than what I'm doing. And so I I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and I'll get a master's in social work too. That opens up a different set of doors that are currently not open for me. And so I went and I, I did that. Um, and then I went out and I kind of did two things for a while. I would teach still. And then I would have side jobs where like, you know, evening, weekend, summers, those sorts of things where I would work in places as a social worker. So I worked in like a substance abuse treatment center. Uh, I continued to work with, with troubled kids in a variety of different ways. And then eventually uh, this would have been after the, everything kind of went to shit in 2009, me and a bunch of people who were working for the school district I was working for, we lost our jobs because uh, they, the school district just couldn't afford to pay people. And I was one of the people who wasn't at the bottom and I wasn't at the top uh, and I, so they, I was right at the spot where they cut you and it was me and a bunch of other people. So we all got let go. And at that time I thought, you know what, I've wanted to do something different for a long time anyways. And I totally changed my life. I, I started a private practice just seeing patients and that was all I did. And I went back and I got my doctorate in social work. And when I went back and got my doctorate, the very first thing that we had to read was Freud's introductory lectures to psychoanalysis. And going into this, I've, I had, of course, course heard of Freud. I'd, of course, like I knew about some things that Freud had thought and done, but I'd never actually read Freud in the raw. I'd only read people writing about Freud or writing kind of summaries of Freud. And I kind of went in expecting that I wasn't going to be that taken by it. Uh, you know, I'll read it cause I have to. And mm-hmm. what ended up happening was it, I was like, this is amazing. I'm going around talking to my friends being, have you heard of this Freud guy? Have you ever read Freud? Uh, and, and, and people were <laughs> surprised cause like, wait a minute, of course, like it's Freud. And I'm like, no, you, I, I thought what you thought, but then I started to read Freud and reading Freud is totally <laughs> different than reading all these people who write about him. It's, it's amazing. He's so right about so many different things. And, uh, I, so that was the thing. And then we kind of moved on to other stuff, but I continued to read Freud. And eventually uh, I moved from Freud to Winnicott. Uh, and when I was reading about Winnicott, Winnicott was somebody who was actually sent to Paris to before Lacan got kicked out of the IPA, which I referred to earlier. Winnicott was one of the people who went to go check out what he was doing and to kind of 
determine if what he was doing was real psychoanalysis, legit psychoanalysis or not. And Winnicott thought it wasn't. <laughs> um, and I, so that was my, I heard about the Lacan through that. And then I was like, oh, that's, that sounds interesting. I'll read more about it. And I kind of went down that rabbit hole. And as I went down that rabbit hole, I found the story about this incredibly innovative psychoanalyst who was doing things that seemed like they were really smart. And they were making a lot of people really upset, which made me more curious about him, right? And and so like <laughs> I, I, I just kinda yeah. I got the Acree, the Bruce Fink translation. I tried to read it and I was like <laughs> I mean I'm I'm in a doc program. I'm not I'm not bad at reading stuff. Yeah, I can read hard right. books. But I tried to read that and I was like, this is unintelligible. I have no idea what's <laughs> happening here. And it frustrated me, but it also motivated me. It was that kind of frustration that makes me, that, that instead of just going like getting frustrated and being like, you know what, I'm done with this. I, it was a mistake. I was like, I don't understand this. I'm going to figure out how to understand it. And uh, you know, I, I started to talk to more people who were interested in Lacan. Many of them were not clinical people, though. They were in, you know, the Department of Literature and they were in the Department of Film Studies and they were in, in these other yeah. like non-related areas. And I mean, that that led to my discovery of Zizek and reading him helped a lot and reading Bruce Fink's secondary sources helped a lot. And then I, I started to I read Seminar 11 after doing some secondary source stuff and that's i was like okay i kind of get this this isn't nearly as bad and i just kept at it and you know i mean that was like coming up on like uh somewhere between eight to ten years ago now and now i think i i get a lot more than i used to and there's still a ton of stuff that i don't understand still (laughs) and that's the cool thing about lacan is that there there are these moments for me anyways of reading him and just feeling like these this insight kind of like bursts up and you're like i understand something and that's really fun and then there are other times where it's like oh my gosh there's this concept and i i don't think i understand it and it, it just there's always more you you never run out of stuff to understand with lacan and that's really fun and so i he continues to be interesting other people i mean at a certain point you've read a lot of their stuff and uh uh, this is how it is for me sometimes anyways i'll read somebody and i feel like they're kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again slightly differently but pretty much the same thing lacan is not like that lacan has new ideas and he, sometimes he does return to an old idea but when he does it's not the same idea anymore it's a new idea uh, that he kind of gets to through this old idea and that just blows me away and that's how i've i've got into him and that's why i continue i think to be really interested in lacan Definitely, I, I think for me, he is—I don't know—one of the most. I don't know, just as a, just as like a raw, pure thinker, I can't put my finger on anyone else that like has. I don't know. There's something about his ideas or the way he thinks is just so to me very mm-hmm. impressive. It's very impressive, and. Uh, thinking my kind of my entree into Lacan was like I studied English and so I got exposed to a lot of uh, like Derrida, Foucault, etc. And then even had one of my professors recommend like Baudrillard and I think they even re- recommended um, A Thousand Plateaus from Deleuze and Watari. And so I kind of caught that bug early on and now it's been like, shoot, that was like 
2003 or so. And so here I'm, it's almost 20 years later that I'm still like, I've been consumed with that kind of post-structuralist structuralist mm-hmm. world of thinkers. But it wasn't until about two years ago that I kind of started to look into Lacan. And I still really honestly have yet to read, I think, any primary sources now that I think about it. He, he's, you can get really far with the secondary stuff. And I think that's actually the best way to start is spending a lot of time there so that yeah. you become somewhat fluent in the language, right? Because there's these terms that are not commonplace that don't get used other places. Um, so like when you read Freud, for example, he'll talk about like the id, the ego, and the superego. And then other people will also use those very same terms. Uh, Freud will talk about the unconscious, and clearly a lot of people talk about that. You'll you'll see these things popping up. Lacan is talking about das Ding and objet a and full speech and these other things that are not present in other psychoanalytic work. It's a language all of its own, and it can get really kind of confusing. And, and also, I think that there are times where uh, the, I mentioned earlier the Y Theory podcast. They're so good about talking about this. He'll bring up a concept like das Ding is a concept that comes up in seminar number seven, uh, the ethics of psychoanalysis. And he develops it there. And then I think he might refer to it one other time and that's it. And then he never talks about it again, but he talks about other things. He talks about object on, he talks about master signifiers and you can kind of see that there's uh, if you do all the reading anyways, and kind of see the through lines, you can, I think argue that there's some connections between these things and different people see different connections, but it's important to spend that time with the secondary source material so that you can have it. It's like your DNS servers point to the right thing when you, when you see the term That's really, if they don't, it's going to be really, really hard to read this stuff. I have a bit about Lacan being the, uh, he was the, he gave Plato the idea for the philosopher King in this sort of retroactive fashion. I don't know if you're familiar. I think there's a concept that uh, maybe Nick Land has, or it's even, I think, somewhat, maybe even Hegelian in the sense of like, only like, it's kind of like the, uh, even maybe Zizek says this too, um, about like, once you get to the, the, like the synthesis is, like the antithesis antithesis Mm -hmm. comes first, Instead of thesis or something like, kind of like reversing the order. Because like you would think, okay, yeah, the thesis comes first and then the antithesis and then... Right, right. The, uh, but yeah, that, right. that is a Zizek thing. I'm pretty sure that he says that, that you start with an, an antithesis and an antithesis and you, you, the thesis is generated from that uh, kind of thing. And and I, I mean, he also talks then about how it isn't even about creating a synthesis. It's just about creating... It's going deep enough into the contradiction that you get to the next thing ultimately. So um, another way to think of that, this is how I do it, whether it's helpful or not, I don't know. I think that people start with a solution and I equate solution with antithesis. And then what happens is a problem emerges and the problem is like the thesis. And then what happens is that they, they kind of engage each other. And then what happens is you have the creation of a new problem, (laughs) Not a or, or new solution, and then a, a, another new problem occurs, and you keep on going in that direction. But it's this idea that um, there's a solution. The solution stops working 
because there's some new problem that comes up. And from that, you derive a new solution, but then that solution eventually doesn't hold because a new problem comes up and it keeps on progressing in that fashion. Yeah. Okay. So that's exactly what I was, yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. Um, so just out of curiosity, off off topic, but have you delved much into Not Hegel? Not enough, actually. That's that's one of those things where... Not enough. Yes. I, you know, the phenomenology is, is it's a big book, <laughs> man. And I, I mean <laughs> yeah it is i'm i'm busy i mean everybody's busy I, so it's not like i'm special for being busy <laughs> but like i i teach uh full-time i'm on a 10-year track thing so i'm trying to do that i see patients two days a week and i'm a dad so <laughs> like the the idea and if i was going to do the phenomenology i i don't want to start it and not be able to kind of like really commit to it uh, or maybe even the phenomenology might not even be the best place to start for all I know. But either way, if I were to start with Hegel, I don't want to like start but not really have the resources in terms of time and energy that I need to to do it. Um, because it, what what my life has taught me is that when I start to get into something, if I'm really into it, there's other things that I kind of like need to do and I won't do them because I'll be really interested in this thing that I don't need to do but it's more interesting than all of the things that I do need to do. And so it can kind of like mess up my life, which is, it's funny. Like that's my death drive. You know what I mean? Like kind of coming out and fucking with me. Yeah. And in an attempt to, I guess, contain my death drive, I try not to give myself these kind of like lines of flight or lines of escape from all the things that I need to do. Gotcha. I started the phenomenology. I can't remember if I, I feel like it's got a it's got like a preface and either an introduction or there's I always kinda of, kinda of conflate them and I think one he kind of wrote after the phenomenology was like finished. And I like I said, I mix up whichever one and that actually kinda of ties back into this whole idea of things being like compl- like kind of everything coming together once the thing has yeah. sort of ended. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Or sort of this kind of like reversal of this linear time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I, I, I know that I've read the preface of the phenomenology. I've never read more than that. And I didn't, I didn't read it in the way that it, it wasn't like a serious read. It was like, I'll, I'll, I'll try this kind of. Yeah. And, uh, I thought I was going to try a couple pages, but I, I read it all the, the preface and because this is what will happen. I'll start something and I get into it. And then, you know, <laughs> it's like, Hey, did you cut the Life grass? Happens, yeah. Oh, I, it's getting dark. <laughs> I, I guess I can't do it. Now I have to deal with somebody being cross with me. I, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of, so I don't want that to happen yeah. a whole lot, but yeah, whatever. Anyways, uh, I'll talk to students now when they're writing papers and I will tell them to write their introduction last. Or I'm like, you can write an introduction if you want to, but you, you, you're going to need to rewrite it when you're done writing the paper because, the I mean, it's a rare person who can actually have a plan and stick to it all the way through with something. And, and you don't know what you've written a lot of times until after you've written it. It's fine to have a plan. Just don't expect that you're going to follow it, I guess. We can kind of dive back into you told us a little bit about that you're, you know, you kind of are integrating 
Lacanian concepts, I guess, in, into sort of your practice, not as an analyst, but just as, as kind of through your social work. Tell me like kind of a little bit, how are you kind of doing that? Because I think if I'm not mistaken, you don't see a lot of Lacanian practicing psychoanalysts or what have you, a lot of those techniques necessarily. I think oftentimes it's more, I mean, although there are obviously practicing mm-hmm. Lacanians, I think you often like it. And we talked about this too. I think you usually find them in, you know, the literature, you know, department or they're studying text or something like that rather than actually treating people. So I think that's kind of a, a really interesting angle to, yeah. So to I, go into. I will, I'll do two things clinically, right? So there are people who actually want psychoanalysis and there are people who come to me for that specifically. Like they're like, I want to do psychoanalysis. Okay. And most of the time they want to do it with somebody who is a Lacanian. That's what they're looking for. And and these are people who have heard of Lacan. I've never had somebody be like, "Hey, I, you know, I'm looking for a Lacanian analyst because a friend told me that I should." Like I, that stuff doesn't go down. These are people <laughs> who are somewhat knowledgeable, sometimes very knowledgeable, you know, about Lacan, and that's that's what they want. So interesting. Uh, there's not a lot of Lacanian analysts out sure. here in my area. I'm, I mean, there there probably are a few that I don't know of, but I'm I'm one of the few. There's a a group that I'm a part of called the Lacanian Compass. And that is a group which is associated with the New Lacanian School, which is, uh, you know, the school that Jacqueline Miller, who was Lacan's uh, heir, kind of his son-in-law, uh, who divvies out all the translation work and is the editor of all of the seminars and, and all those sorts of things. So I, I'm I'm a part of that group, which is associated with that school. Uh, and uh, I this is a this the Lacanian compass is actually different because most of the people who are associated with it are not professors of literature or things they're they're clinicians they're people who are doing psychoanalysis as a clinical practice they have a conference every year called clinical study days and it's where people go and they present their clinical work and and I go to that it alternates between New York and Miami so this last year it was in New York because it happened before everything with coronavirus went down the year before that it was in Miami uh, if everything goes well, next year it will be in Miami again, uh, so on and so forth. So anyways, that's that's one thing. So people will come to me for, for psychoanalysis. That does not happen a lot. I'm not going to be able to – I'd be a total liar if I said that that happened on a frequent basis. It doesn't, but it does happen. And then a lot of people come to me just looking for psychotherapy. They do the thing where they call their insurance company and they're like, hey, I'm I'm having a problem. I need to find – a, ther- a therapist and I need to find a therapist that's in network and I'm in network with a variety of insurance panels. And so people will find me that way. Uh, and likewise, I get referrals from other therapists and other analysts and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've been doing this, that stuff long enough that I know other people who are doing it and they'll send people my way if they think it'll be a good fit for, for, for me. So to, to answer your question, um, about how I do this, uh, I can answer it sort of along two different lines. I can answer it along a technical line, like the techniques that I use and kind of describe how I use those techniques. Right. And I could also describe the kind of like underlining philosophical ideas that I think really kind of animate those those techniques. Uh, do you want me to start with either one of those things? I, whatever, I think whatever you kind of feel makes, makes sense logically. I think they're definitely both of interest. Uh, I think both, you know, both the, the cl- kind of clinical pra- practicing side of it and the philosophy, even though like obviously the podcast is, I think, more so geared towards the philosophy end of it. I think it's interesting to hear about the clinical side too and just get a feel for like 
how these things sort of play out in the real world. And I think in, especially with mm-hmm. someone like Lacan, who is, you know, typically, I think at least popularly, you know, like I said, like we talked about, he's more, in, I think, influential or more popular in kind of like that, that uh, kind of cultural yeah. studies kind of milieu of like looking at movies or, or what have you. So I think whatever you feel uh, would serve, you know, okay. kind of make things uh, it's probably nicely. easier to start with techniques actually because they're they're easier to explain and then maybe revisit them through a philosophical lens. Sure. So when somebody okay. shows up for psychoanalysis, if that that's what they're looking for, not psychotherapy, I'm not billing their insurance because insurance companies don't pay for psychoanalysis. There's not as far as I know, there's not a single insurance company that will let you bill if what you're doing is psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis goes on for an indefinite amount of time. You don't know how long it's going to take. You don't know how long it's going to go on for. And it does not claim to cure people. It doesn't do that. It's not the point. A lot of times the cure does happen, but the cure happens as a byproduct of the psychoanalytic process. Not You don't set out to do it. It, it happens sort of... Right. And a lot of times what people like think will be the cure is not actually the cure. <laughs> it's something else. And yeah, that's totally. very Lacanian, and I'd right? say just like <laughs> psychoanalysis generally, not even in, in the Lacanian world, but definitely in in Lacan for sure. So, anyways, if somebody comes for psychoanalysis, what I'll do usually is I want to meet with them uh, once or twice, to, depending on how good the session, the first session goes, and I don't want them to give me any money at all. I want no money for the, that that time. I simply want them to come in, and the first session is a little bit of. Um, it's not it's not pure psychoanalysis. I think we have a, a they ask me about me. I'm more forthcoming. I I talk if they need to to know things like how long have I been doing this, whatever. Um, have I been married? Sometimes people ask that. Uh, I've been asked, am I religious? Am I a parent? Uh, people have questions. I answer the questions. Some in in this time, or they want to know how I got into Lacan. Uh, I'll tell them that. Uh, sometimes people don't do that, and they come in and they just want to get right to work, and and we start doing psychoanalysis very quickly. Uh, but what I want them to do is I, I want them to try it with me and I want them to not have to give me money in the beginning because once money is exchanged, it changes things. It, it, once people give you money, they want to get what they've paid for. So my thought is that if you let people try it and it, it's something that they find value in, they think this is what I want to do, then great. We'll work together and we'll arrange a fee and uh, we'll, I'll actually – so like say somebody shows up for a session – we talk for however long, because uh, a lot of times the first sessions are longer than 50 minutes. They can go for an hour or sometimes even 90 minutes, not often, but sometimes. And uh, they say, yeah, I, wanna, I, wa- I definitely want to keep doing this. Uh, since I'm not billing their insurance, what I might do is say, okay, well, why don't you pay for the second session now? And then that's, that's good, and we'll kind of work it out that way. Um, so they're kind of like paying for the session beforehand. I don't always do that, but that's, that's a, a common practice that I, I do. Um, another thing that will happen is since psychoanalysts are not as accessible as other mental health professionals, a lot of times if somebody's willing to kind of like show travel to, to see me, that's great. We'll, we'll meet face to face. Uh, and then if they want to switch to doing virtual sessions, like sessions through zoom or something like that, I I'll do things that way. The analyst who I work with is a, a guy named, uh, Tom Savolos and he's out in Omaha, Nebraska, and I, I contacted him because I couldn't find a Lacanian analyst in Chicago. 
And I flew out to Omaha like four times and did four sessions in a day each time I was there. And then after that, we switched to doing virtual sessions on a more frequent basis during the week. And that's what I still do now. And then I occasionally I'll still fly out to Omaha or uh, I'm, he was at the clinical study days conference and we did sessions there. So that's, that's how that will work. And I don't know that a lot of other analysts do that, but Lacanians do. So that's something you can kind of, uh, I think, uh, know that that's an option, I guess, if you're looking for Lacanian analysis. Once analysis gets going, once you get past that initial phase of analysis, there are certain techniques that I'll use a lot. And uh, what people are very surprised by is that I don't talk very much when I do psychoanalysis. And that's common. I think most analysts don't say much. They tend to listen a lot. and They tend to, I hope anyways, listen very intently to what the person comes in and says and how they say it. And they don't say a whole lot back. Uh, I do dream work. You know, that's something that comes up very frequently in psychoanalysis. People will talk about the dreams they've had. And the dreams uh, are a great way to get at some unconscious content. I'll use a lot of one-word questions. Uh, what I mean by that is somebody will tell me about something going on in their life. And uh, then there'll be like a pause. And there'll be a certain word that they used. And I will just kind of repeat that word back to them with a question mark at the end. Uh, so, for example, if somebody talks about how they're telling me about their romantic relationship and they say that it's, you know, this kind of relationship and they describe it as extremely like, you know, loving and caring and blah, 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 blah. Uh, at a certain point, I might go loving. What do you mean? And and just kind of like prompt the person to say more about something. If people do things like they use air quotes around a word, this happened somewhat recently. I was talking to somebody and they put air quotes around the word fair. And so I went, fair? It, it, because it's, it's just saying more about that, right? I'm not, I'm not offering an interpretation. I'm simply highlighting different elements of their speech. And hopefully that will get them to associate to that particular signifier in some way, and they'll say more about it, and it'll lead to what that signifier will connect to other signifiers, which will connect to other signifiers, and eventually we'll, we'll get somewhere, but you, you do it that way. Um, when I do dream work, I mentioned that earlier, common thing I do, somebody comes in, they tell me a dream, and I, I say, okay, I want to make sure that I really got that. Can you please tell me the dream one more time? I want to take it all in one more time from start <laughs> to finish. Don't leave anything out. And they tell it to me a second time. And the second time they tell it, they always, always, always leave something out from the first telling or they add something. And then what I'll do is I'll kind of go to that stuff and I'll be like, you know, what about this? You know, uh, the first time you said the dream, you, you said you were in your house, your parents' house. And the second time you told me the dream, you said you were in your parents' house in the front room. Tell me about the front room and let's see what that leads to because that's a signifier. And that signifier got edited out the first time around. So there's something theoretically in that, and I want to see what that leads to. Um, when I do say things in a psychoanalytic session, I tend, they tend not to be what Lacan called empty speech. They tend to be, you know, an empty speech is a speech that has no desire in it. It has no real effect on the person who hears it. It's chit-chat about sports or the weather. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, full speech should have some kind of a desire. In my case, a desire to know more or understand something or see what other signifiers are attached to that signifier. I, I want to find that out. I want to know that. Uh, and it's hopefully going to have an effect on the person who hears it. Like when they, when they hear me speak, it, it, the, the speech 
hits them in a certain way or sometimes it cuts them. Lacan said sometimes the best speech is the speech that cuts somebody. And, uh, it, you kind of go from there. Uh, he had this other idea too, when you're, when you're, when I'm listening, what I'm listening for, trying to listen for is the subject, the Lacanian subject. Uh, this is something that I don't think happens in a lot of other psychotherapies. So Lacan had this idea. Uh, if you imagine sort of like two Venn diagrams here, uh, the circle on the left, let's call that circle our, our social life and our social life. We have things that we need to do. And there are consequences if we don't do them. I mentioned earlier cutting the grass. Like that's, I hate cutting the grass. Cutting the grass is stupid. It's going to grow again. You know, I'd like to just burn the yard down. But then everybody would be pissed <laughs> off that I burned the yard down. So I, I have to cut the grass. I can't burn the yard down. Um, that's all in my social life. Uh, ultimately, there's expectations. And they're, they're real expectations. And if I violate them too much, then I have consequences that I won't enjoy. Uh, likewise, the second circle on the right... Let's call that the discourse of the unconscious. Um, that is the place where all of our repressed desires go. So we all have desires, wishes, things that we want, but we don't allow ourselves to be aware of them because if we were to be aware of them, we would have to do something about them. And if we were to do something about them, we'd probably be violating social norms. And as a result, this is a process that happens independently of our thought. It's not like a conscious thing. These, these things get repressed into the unconscious. And a lot of times the things that they're connected to, the, the desires that are connected to those desires, they also get repressed into the unconscious at the same time. And the subject is where these two circles overlap. So the subject speaks. And when the subject speaks, it's speaking with its eyes kind of tor- turned towards the first circle, the circle of social intelligibility, the circle of trying to make itself heard and understood by the big O other by society in, in a way that will not get them in trouble. But the subject always says more than it means to. This is how it works, right? And when the subject says more than it means to, what's going on is that those unconscious desires that are repressed but still very much a part of the person are being expressed through their speech. Uh, I want to try to give you an example of this because it seems sort of uh, wibbly-wobbly. Mm. If somebody were to come into a session and say to me, you know, the reason I'm here is that I'm having some trouble in my marriage. I've been married for however many years, and uh, I want to make something really clear here. My wife is a wonderful person. I adore her, right? She is, she's great. She's the love of my life, da-da-da-da-da, and then they would say more things. Like, that is this thing, that, they're directing that speech at, at the other. They're trying to describe their marriage in a certain way that they think will be good, my theory would be if somebody were to say something like that, that because I didn't ask them, right? They just spontaneously generated that, <laughs> that there is an unconscious desire to express displeasure with their wife. And that would be something the subject was expressing without meaning to express it. And that's the kind of stuff that right. I would pay attention to. And then I would say yeah. something like, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd highlight that element of things. Um, uh, I'd And that could be with a one word question, but it could also be with, something more substantial than that. I might say something like, you know, it's really interesting to me that you, you thought it was important to tell me how much you really cared for your wife. You, you said it in at least three different ways. Stop. Don't say more. Right. Uh, this is a part of Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is very important is to kind of keep things at the level of the speech that the patient produces and not to kind of, um, 
uh, add things to that unnecessarily because it, it, the, right. the speech okay. is rich enough. There's so much in it that you can work with. You don't need to add things to it. You can just sort of take what they give you and and go from there. Some people respond to that and they respond very favorably. They love it, right? It actually gets them somewhere. Um, and other times people hate it and they fire me very quickly. They're like, you, you suck at this. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to this guy anymore. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of how it goes. Incidentally, I, I do these same things with somebody who comes to me for psychotherapy. I just probably work up to them a little bit slower. I'd, I'd say, um, there's a, an idea, uh, Jacqueline Miller said this, right? Um, for a long time, there was this distinction between what was called psychoanalytic psychotherapy or applied psychoanalysis and pure psychoanalysis. And Miller talked about how there's really just psychoanalysis. And the way that you practice analysis is not based off of adherence to a set of rules or a prescription of seeing somebody, having them lie down on a couch, doing it three times a week. That doesn't make something analysis. What makes something analysis is the principles that guide the techniques that you deploy. Without the principles, technique doesn't matter. You have to have those. And and those are more of like the the philosophical end of things. I don't know if that that was a lot of talk, so I don't know if you want to jump in here. <laughs> no, I mean I I don't have a whole lot to add. That's I mean just fascinating just listening to you. Um I just kind of like snapped on to a couple of things. So you're talking about the I think I basically kind of described a little bit about, I think what Lacan would refer to as kind of the signifying chain because you're referencing, okay, you like pick up on something and then you're kind of like, uh, you know, a phrase that the analyzan says, and you're kind of taking that and then working your way through, okay, like going down that kind of signifying chain and like there will oftentimes be things unearthed beyond like that kind of initial utterance or what have you that they that they make that can maybe i don't know i guess you could probably tell me a little bit more about how that sort of works itself or how that becomes sort of a benefit to the analysis so that that was kind of one thing if the other thing was i was just noted noting that the the kind of example you gave about the spouse referring to the like trying to like they're very um you know they're trying to edify that or trying to communicate I this but like you know what I mean kind of that contradiction which I think is what is so fascinating about psychoanalysis in general is kind of how these these contradictions in terms of what we what we say and what we act like kind of what our unconscious is doing behind the scenes and how those are kind of like often at odds or they're kind of uh, like there's a reversal there yeah so. I I think that one of the things that seems to be happening pretty regularly that I, I will pick up on in, in my clinical work is that people's unconscious is kind of undermining them in a lot of different ways. And they, they don't seem to get that. They don't, they don't really, they come in and they're like, I'm, I keep on, you know, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And I don't know why I do it. I can't seem to help myself. And it's like, all right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why, what you do and why you, just tell me anything about it, right? To start talking. There's no wrong answer. It's impossible to make a mistake. Just say what comes to your mind. And uh, if, you, if you worry that it will sound crazy, try not to worry about that. If you think it won't make sense, that's fine. It doesn't need to make sense. Just talk as freely as you're able to. And, and we'll sort of take it from there. So when people 
I mean, no one, no one can do that, right? Like the, the interesting thing about free association is when somebody tells you, speak as though your words um, aren't going, that you don't need to make them make sense. You don't need to organize your speech. You don't need to worry about anything. Just, just talk with no plan. When, when you, when somebody gives you that direction, one of the things that people tend to realize very quickly is you can't do that, that it is impossible to speak without constructing some kind of a plan. You, you, you can't stop yourself. It's like saying, it's like when people try to meditate and they try not to think you, 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 that's really hard. You can't just like not think when somebody tells you, don't worry about the, the way that your speech is going to come across to me. Yeah. Maybe you can minimize it to a degree, but you can't stop it. You know? Yeah. And that almost ample. And then that kind of like conscious awareness of it pushes you towards that yeah, <laughs> even yeah, further. Yeah, I mean, it, and that's the thing. Like uh, I mentioned earlier that analysis takes a long time, and that's one of the reasons why insurance companies don't pay for it. One of the reasons it takes a long time is that people, like, they can't come in and start free associating typically very quickly. And there, there's going to be a lot of empty speech to get through before you might arrive at some kind of full speech production on the part of the patient. Um, it, it takes as long as it takes. There's no way to put a timetable on that. Some people can do it kind of fast. They're usually people who've done analysis before, uh, you know. Yeah. And do, to that end, do you know, like, are you kind of cognizant of when, of kind of when that is happening or like, does that make sense? Do I need to elaborate? Yeah, elaborate. Just, I, I think I follow, but I'm not sure. Um, so like, when do you, how do you know that? So you gave the example of, I think full, it was full speech, right? Versus Empty speech. was it just Empty speech, okay. Like, how do you? How are you as the analyst making that determination? How does that become? How does that become kind of clear? Or you know, are you just sort of guessing? Or like, what's what's the process? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it is just guessing. Uh, but you, okay. you can you can tell when you hit the mark. Educated yeah. guesses, um, right? So it's it's weird though too because when people come in, I think that they'll, they'll present things. They won't. They won't just like do chaotic, crazy. This is what I'm thinking right now with no filter. They filter it. They do try to craft some kind of a narrative that you can follow. And when they do that, um, they think they're talking about something, and they they'll think that uh, this is the important part. Then they, they'll spend a lot of time on that. Right. And usually, the important part is not what they think it is. It's something that sneaks into it, and it's like. Um, they, they didn't even realize that it snuck in. And so when, when an, an analyst, I think, yeah. is fairly good, what they'll be able to do is they'll be able to hear the subject speak. And, and what they, when they hear the subject speak, what they're hearing is those unconscious desires sort of like sneaking in to the speech in some way. And so when I talk about the technique of highlighting speech, what I, or, or uh, Jacqueline Miller also calls it noting speech. It's just basically going like to the patient, you said something, and it has to be something that they actually said. It's not something that I, that's like my interpretation of what they said. It's what they said. And you call their attention to that. And you might just say something like, that's interesting. And you don't, you don't elaborate, right? Um, so the thing about Lacanian analysis is that many people, even people who, who like it, they find it frustrating because they're like, what do, what do you mean it's interesting? And you're like, I, there's something there. I don't know. Well, that's it. Or you don't say anything. They go, what do you mean it's interesting? And you just kind of shrug your shoulders. 
and, and they're like, ah, you know, like they they're 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 basically placing you into a certain position, uh, the position of a master or whatever, and you're turning it down. You're going, I'm not going to tell you what that means. Uh, I don't know what it means. What do you think? I'm just going to say that I think it means something, but I don't know what. And this is playing the role of the analyst. The analyst like is always sliding back out of reach and not not gratifying the patient. Um, it's one of the other things that makes it so different than so many psychotherapies. I think a ton of psychotherapies now are predicated on the idea that the therapist should kind of uh, help the the patient or what they call the client feel good about themselves. That they that they should um, offer some kind of stabilization or. Uh, coping technique or tool for the toolbox or some such thing. And this is always the the therapist giving the patient something. And the analyst does not seek to give the patient anything at all. The analyst has nothing to give you. Nothing. Except for their ability to listen to you. That's that's it. But they don't they don't give you techniques. They don't give you tools. They don't give you um something that you can kind of like take out and, and try it in your life. They A lot of times people end up, I think, leaving mini psychoanalytic sessions feeling a little bit more beat up and unsure than when they walked in. And Lacan would say that's good. That's not a bad thing when that occurs because what you want is uh, the person comes into the office and sits down and talks. That gets something started, but then they have to continue the work outside of the office like in the in their life because that's where they live. They don't live in your office. They live out in the world. And and whatever happens in the office kickstarts something, but then that thing kind of continues to move out in the office. Um, this is not something that I think I, this is a personal preference thing. I don't do this until after I've worked with somebody for a while, uh, and I I feel fairly confident that they're neurotic, uh, or, or neurotic enough to handle it. Um, because Lacan in Lacanian world, you're, you're psychotic or you're neurotic. There is no healthy person <laughs> like neurotic is the best you can hope for. But anyways, um, you'll cut a session short. You'll, somebody will come in and sometimes they'll say something and it'll be, it'll, it'll seem poignant. It'll seem significant. It'll be something in it that is like, I don't know. It's got, it's got a vibe. It's got a feeling to it. You, you can sense, you, you think you sense something there. And rather than even saying anything about it, you'll just be like, we're going to stop here. And you send the person out on that note. Theoretically, when you deploy that technique of scansion, uh, which is what that's that's called cutting the session before the standard 50 minutes, the idea is the patient will leave and they'll be like, why did the analyst cut the session there? What happened? What did I say? And so now they're thinking, they're asking questions, and that's good. That's actually a really, really amazing, good thing when that happens. It's better to leave kind of like a little bit off off balance than it is to leave like kind of on balance. Because if you're on balance, it's just like, I don't know, getting a haircut or something like that, right? You go in, you got this thing done, and now you feel good, and you'll come back and do it again. But it, it doesn't change the way that you live. Right. And so th- is this something, so you mentioned, I think, I think you were going to this earlier about uh, some things that got Lacan in trouble and and excommunicated from I forget the the body, but the the short session I think is one of those one of those yeah. things and and, right. and I mean let I want to be really fair about this too. I mean Lacan would sometimes do sessions that were five minutes long. I here so far <laughs> I've never done a session that's five minutes long. All right, right. Now, I know there yeah. are other people who do do that. You know, I, I haven't done it. Um, 
maybe one day I will, but it, it hasn't happened yet. And, and the thing is here, like you're you're paying for this the session, no matter how long it is. And right. uh, so I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit wary of the short session, and and it's one of those things that. This is a, an opinion. It is not a fact. I do believe that there are times where Lacan probably took it a little bit too far. Um, and, and I I try to be pretty circumspect with how I use it because I want it to be effective. I don't want it to just be something that I do just because right. I can. Yeah, just to be like, oh, I'm using this Lacanian technique. Yeah, and I mean, and, and the reality yeah, is, yeah. I think of it not necessarily as a short session, but a variable length session. So for, from my point of view, that means uh, the session gotcha. can go longer or shorter. It, it can go either way. Right. Um, and I know uh, somebody who actually talked about this. It was, it was really impressive. It was a woman analyst and she talked about how she had a patient who would basically um, spend 45 minutes uh, talking about essentially not nothing of consequence. And then in the last bit of the session, this patient would bring up something significant and then he'd be like, but we don't have time to talk about it. So I guess I'll talk about that next week. <laughs> And what she did is she said, no, don't yeah. worry about it. Keep going. And he's like, but don't you have somebody after me? And she's like, it's fine. I, I think it's important. Keep going, please. Right. And that's a that's also a variable length session right there. You're, she was sort of doing it in the opposite way that most people are familiar with it. But the idea was to do something that the patient didn't expect. He didn't know it was going to happen. And now he had to keep talking about this thing. He had to keep doing doing the work in, in a way. The The... Changing the length of the session is to get somebody to do work. That's that's the idea here, and um, you got to be careful with it. I think, like any technique, right? You can you can use it wrong if you're, uh, I think, too free and loose with it. So you you talked a lot about desire, and I remember in our in our kind of prep discussion, you mentioned a little bit about, and I think this was discussion kind of mostly about death drive as opposed to desire and objet ah and kind of how those two things function in sort of a, I guess a kind of a, like a, if we're thinking of like a, a diagram, for example, of how, how death drive works versus how desire works and functions through objet ah. And you're kind of mentioning how you try to get people to break this kind of cycle of, of, of death drive by giving, like introducing an object. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things in that. So the, uh, the first thing I'd say is that that there's a difference between just two concepts that uh, most people are pretty familiar with. Um, demand and desire are the, the two concepts. So earlier I talked about that Venn diagram where you have the two circles and one circle is all of your social obligations. That's, that's demand. Um, desire would be the other circle. You're what you really want. Now you don't always know what you really want. I think people who don't like psychoanalysis don't like it because it says that you most of the time, in fact, probably all of the time actually don't know what you want. You do want it. You just don't know what it is. Uh, you have a desire for something, but you're not sure what, uh, and if you think that you know what it is, that's actually a good sign that you, in fact, don't, right, uh, is kind of how it works. Probably don't, yeah. So <laughs> I find that... I'm thinking about this in, like, my own life, and I'm like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's how it works. It, you, you hear this stuff, and you start thinking, like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, right. But uh, but with this, I think... <laughs> what am I confronting? Totally, right. Yeah, you're you're actually asking a question, which is great. 
that um, is how it goes. So when patients come in, I think a lot of times they come in and they they have more of a demand. They they have a de- their demand is this is wrong, make it better. This is I'm doing something stupid, make me stop. Uh, fix me, cure me, make me behave differently, help me fit in, make me not anxious, make me not depressed, so on, so on. Uh, this is always a demand. A demand is kind of uh, also has a fantasy baked into it, and the fantasy is that if you show up for a long enough time and give the therapist a certain amount of money or something, that they're going to give you what you want. That's a fantasy. You can show up for a really long time. You can give the therapist all sorts of money. Doesn't mean they can give you what you want. Actually, they probably can't. Uh, it would be very strange if they could, but uh, maybe they could, but I, I don't think they, they usually can. In psychoanalysis, what happens is somebody comes in a lot of times still with a demand and if analysis is doing its job, if it's working well enough, people move from demand to desire. So instead of coming in and saying, fix me, cure me, and make me behave differently, the person starts going, why do I do that? And that's where, that'd be actually, if somebody asked a question like that, that would be a great time to, to cut a session on, on that. Be like, that's a great question. Let's stop here. And you know, go because now you're not coming in here with the fantasy that I have the answer to that question. You ask the question in a legitimate way because at that moment, the person realized that the, I don't have that answer. They asked it as a real question. They didn't think that I could make them different. They just were like, why do I do this? Yeah. Why do you, um, or somebody might go, well, what do I want for my life? Great question. You know, what do you want? That's, a, that's great. And, and you're saying you don't know, and you're saying that I don't know. <laughs> well, neither of us know what you want. But now you have a question. If you have a question, you have something that you can look for an answer for. If you come in with a demand, you, you believe that you know what you want, and you're telling the person to help get you what it is that you believe that you want, but you probably actually don't want it or you don't want it for the reasons you think you do or in the way that you think you do. Uh, so that's that's kind of part of the idea here. Uh, analysis, for me, has a lot to do with shifting people from demand to desire. That's uh, Earlier I mentioned principles, principles guide analysis more than techniques. Mm-hmm. That's a principle, um, the principle of, of the shift from demand to desire. How you do that, there's a ton of different technical tricks that you can deploy to help move somebody from demand to desire, but that's what you're trying to do. You don't know what's going to happen when you do it. it it's Who knows? But that's that's kind of part of the idea here. Um, so that's the first part. The The second part I can get into next, unless you want to ask a question about any of that, is how I kind of see um, death drive kind of being aligned with demand and how I see the unconscious and object ah kind of being aligned with desire. I just one comment is I kind of think it's interesting in this kind of dialectic you're giving between demand and desire and how that sort of like a demand is very much influenced almost like it's it's kind of very influenced by like the logic of capitalism mm-hmm. right it's like which is almost kind of tied to that desire too and and the object of like you know you're going to give me this this thing you're going to tell me this thing that's going to solve, you know, whatever issues I'm having. And it's going to be this very transactional thing. I think it's very cool that psychoanalysis is almost like it's it's kind of transcending that logic or like th- kind of thwarting that logic, 
quite a bit. Yeah, I think that psychoanalysis is something, it's one of the, I don't think it fits into capitalism. <laughs> it's kind of what it comes down to. Uh, I know I think that like Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari might have thought that maybe it did, but um, uh, you probably know more about that actually than I do. But uh, I don't think it does. That that's the idea here. It it it's it's a practice that kind of is predicated under this idea that you you're not going to get satisfaction. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But it, what you might get is the ability to be kind of interested in, fascinated by, curious about your dissatisfaction. And and being curious right. about it will actually be <laughs> satisfying in a different way, right? Like um Yeah. <laughs> that's so Lacan that's that's just a great example of that kind of like contradictory element that I think is so fascinating yeah, about Lacan. Definitely. Uh it it's weird. Like um if people if people, for example, were able to get what they, they demanded um, they would be uh, the only thing worse than not having what you think you want is having it because when you have it, right. you start to realize very quickly, it's not going to give you what you want. You know, if somebody wants to have, um, this happens a ton actually in, in clinical work, I've had people say that they just want to have a relationship with somebody who kind of like adores them. I mean, like really is head over heels for them, loves them completely and totally so on and so forth right they want to be loved like that sometimes people will get that and then they're like this is terrible this is awful this i like this person adores me do you do you understand how how not fun this is <laughs> like they don't they they always want to be around me and everything i say is right and i can do no wrong and anytime i say like hey what do you want to do they like say whatever you want and i can't stand it <laughs> Like, there's no conflict there. And without conflict, romantic relationships are super boring. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's wild. People get the thing that they demand. They don't like it anymore. Right. The thing that they thought they wanted. Yeah. I mean, like, Lacan equated desire with life, right? Like, he thought that a ton of people, and this is me paraphrasing a lot of stuff here, uh, that the people a lot of times came in and they wanted to they thought that they wanted to no longer have desires they didn't want to desire the things that they desired but the reality is that that's not what they wanted at all um because desire is the like not having what you want is evidence of being alive if the only time we stop desiring the only time we stop wanting things that we don't have experiences that we can't get etc the only time we stop wanting those things is when we die that's it so the end of desire is death. Who wants that? You know, uh, the person, well, the, it's not really a person. The thing that wants it is death drive. Interesting. So looking at that, so my, my take, my own kind of issue with, and I'm, I think very much, well, not, I'm, I'm working on this is being confrontational with desire as a, as a mechanism of control. Mm which I don't like. I don't like being in this sort of uh, revolving door of like, of desire to where like, you know what I mean? Like there's always this sort of matador like thing, like, Oh, here's the thing. Oh, you're not, there's no satisfaction to be had. And then it's kind of on to that next, next object of desire. Yeah. So speaking, which speaking I find frustrating, <laughs> I'm going to suggest here that you actually love that. 
Wait, what you just said there is a very conscious idea. There's this thing that's going on and I don't like it. I think you do. <laughs> um, because <laughs> think about that. Imagine if you didn't have that in your life, if you can, you know, to, to the extent that you can imagine that. You no longer have this matador thing, like you said. If you were a patient, I'd focus on this idea of matador. That's an incredibly rich signifier. What else comes to mind when you think, why do you say matador? That's what I would do. You know, and I'd see where that that led, but we're not in analysis. We're doing a podcast. But um, uh, my idea here is, if you got that, if all of a sudden, like you 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 went for the thing and you got the 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 you got the satisfaction that you wanted, that would actually be extremely dissatisfying. <laughs> uh, again, once again, this contradiction stuff. This is what I think is so like I don't know. This is what tickles my brain about Lacan and about psychoanalysis mm-hmm. in general is this kind of stuff. It's such a kind of against the grain reading. Yeah. And kind of like steps back from this. And it makes sense too. It's like, it steps back from this like idea that everything is like this very conscious, logical process that is very like linear and there's no contradiction. It's just a matter of kind of like getting your ducks in a row, but it's, it's a lot more complicated and complex than that. It's it's way more complicated and complex than that. If you had the ducks in the row, <laughs> then you would be you'd be so bored. <laughs> you would hate having your ducks in a row. Yeah. Um that is not it seems like it would be satisfying. But the reason it's satisfying is cuz you don't have it. The reason it's satisfying is because you want it. Not and and the getting it renders it no who cares at that point, yeah. right? <laughs> at that point it's it's almost worthless. Yeah. yeah. Is, I, so I would funny. say it's interesting you said almost because I would suggest that it's totally worthless at that point. <laughs> now, I, 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 a bit of a caveat with this. I, I think that whenever I talk about this with people who are generally on the left, they, they sometimes get really frustrated with me and they're just like, surely you think that people should have their basic material needs met. Yes, I absolutely think that people should have their basic material needs met. I don't think there's anything satisfying in like you know, having uh, your tooth get rotted out and not being able to do anything about that. That is not a satisfying thing. There's nothing satisfying about not having access to adequate, good medical care. There's nothing satisfying about um, worrying if you're going to have shelter. You know, that that is not what I'm talking about. Those things I, I absolutely, very fervently believe we should be doing more to make sure that people have those needs met because uh, those are our basic physical needs. We We need those. What I'm talking about, it tends to be more uh, in relation to our, our emotional, psychological, and right. uh, yeah. uh, what do I want to call it here? Uh, our, those sorts of parts of our lives, right? The, the relationships that we have, the careers that we have, um, the families that we build, so on and so forth. These are things that we, a lot of times people do think that they want something for themselves, but then they're they're actually very, very good at setting their lives up in ways and making choices that make sure that they don't get the thing that they're saying they want to get. Why is that? Because wanting it is better. Is there more is there more satisfaction in the desire than the getting? I would I would say right. that many times, not all the time, again, those basic material needs that's not the case there. Um, but yeah, you, you, there, it's really interesting to want to, to, you, you, to use your matador thing here, right. To, to put an end to that game, to stop playing, 
this keep on going for the next thing and then you know it's it's snatched away from you the reality is that playing the game and having whatever it is that you think you want snatched away from you is actually pretty fun <laughs> but go on a bit a little bit as you mentioned and I initially had asked about kind of how your technique wise your or your approach being like trying to get people out of this death drive thing and trying to spiral them out of that circle. Cause they're, I, you know, we had kind of used the metaphor of, I don't know, this is like a, uh, the, the thing is kind of like the black hole and, mm-hmm. and the sort of, there's this sort of circular repeating pattern of behavior or what have you that kind of always circles this, this, the thing or the dusting but you're never really coming into contact with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we talked before, I was, I was, I, I think I was talking about this. I, there's this thing that I've been trying to write for a very long time, and uh, I, I, I must enjoy not writing it, <laughs> actually, because I, <laughs> I, mean, I write parts of it, but it's never, it, it's, it's not quite what I want it to be, and, and all that. But it, I don't know. There's, there is some progress that's happening slowly. Uh, also i'm busy like i said too and so that that kind of gums me up a little bit but anyways um i i'm really interested in the way in certain ways of understanding lacanian concepts and one of the ways that i have been thinking about this is is to use a, a metaphor of a black hole so and man, see, like it's weird. Like even I'm, I'm trying to to think it through in myself in my head right now. And how am I going to say it into this microphone in a way that makes sense? Oh, that's okay. I I can help because I think I I had initially brought up this idea of just like of there being gravity as being a good metaphor for death drive because what gravity is or like no no it was rather being in orbit around something is very similar to how the death drive functions because you're like what orbiting what being in orbit is is constantly falling towards an object but never actually hitting that object because of like whatever you know the speed or whatever is keeping you from from actually coming into contact with it and i thought that was just such a like that is a really good metaphor and then you were saying yeah it's kind of like actually like this black hole situation where you know as you kind of get in the accretion disk and you get in that kind of spinning motion, you just spin very fastly around the object. And I guess that kind of translates to, I guess, more either erratic behavior. It could be self-destructive behavior. I'll let you kind of flesh out what you kind of meant there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so I, I think to, to really get into that, I want to say a, a bit about death drive. Um, sure. So please do. I think of, okay, imagine a black hole. Um, a black hole has tons of gravity. It, it's this dense thing that's pulling everything into it. That's what I think of as the death drive. The death drive is similar to like the gravitational pull of a black hole. Um, now, Freud had in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he wrote that in 1920. It's incredible. If you want to read something awesome, you should totally read that. It's not that long. You can get through it. Um, Freud thought that that you know, our lives were governed by this thing called the pleasure principle. And the pleasure principle was all about kind of getting rid of what different translations call excitation or tension. Um, but when we're alive, what happens is like being alive is it's this kind of like it, it slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. It's you, you get tired 
and then you take a nap and then you get up and you get tired again and you get hungry and then you eat and that brings the tension down but then you get hungry again and uh freud thought that what he noticed it he thought it initially you know that people were trying to make decisions that would sort of like maximize the pleasure in their life but as time went on he started to notice that people did things that actually didn't maximize pleasure or were in fact incredibly destructive and he was like why do people do this and there was this idea that perhaps one of the reasons that they do this is that um there's a there's a drive to return to the time before we were born when we didn't have any of these irritating things that make up a life Right. Um, right. And, and that there's a desire to go back to that, that you want to you that people want to die because being dead means, you know, no more problems because you're dead. It's the end of desire. That's what death is. Um, the death drive puts an end to it. There is no more desiring. There is no more um, matador game going on. It's over. You get what you want. No more. No more playing that game. Uh, and that, that people would destroy themselves to to arrive at this this point where they didn't have to um, deal with the vicissitudes of desire anymore, so that's that's the black hole. There's this thing, the death drive. It's pulling you into it. Uh, now, I also mentioned dusting. I think to you, I think that one of the things that can kind of one of the forms that this can take for people is the this thing called dusting. The thing. Uh, uh, some examples. Again, I'm kind of like stealing from the Y Theory podcast here. Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. Killing the whale is his dusting, right? It's this, it, it's an, it, he will do anything to do that. He doesn't care if he wrecks the boat. He doesn't care if the sailors die. He isn't, there's nothing that he will not do to chase down Moby Dick. There, there's nothing that will stop him from doing this. And if it means that he's going to destroy himself in the process, so be it. He'll do it, right? That's, that's dusting. Uh, Lacan used Antigone and uh, is somebody who was very loyal to dusting. She went out and, she had this idea that there was a, a law, a code, and that it was that she should be allowed to bury her brother who had betrayed Thebes. And Creon's like, no, if you, you bury him, if anybody buries him or any of the people with him, they're going to die. And she went and she did it. And she she knew she was doing something wrong. Uh, wrong isn't against the law, but she didn't care because that was dusting for her. Um, so that's kind of how this works. That's there, There's things that will pull you into that. Uh, people can become overly committed to a, a, a cause of some sort, and that can have extremely destructive processes with it. So the, the black hole is pulling people into it. Uh, this will, it, when, when they're falling towards that black hole, like you said, they can kind of pick up speed. Now, one of the things that I think happens, I don't know how to articulate how this happens, is that people are going really fast, and they start to move in this, like a, a, an elliptical or circular pattern around this black hole object. And if they do that, if this, uh, you get, you get the pull, the gravity of the black hole, but then you also get the centrifugal force, you know, that comes from the spin and they, they combine. And when that happens, the, what I'm trying to write and describe and failing to, to do it in an adequate way so far is the creation of a stable symptom, uh, the creation of an object, ah, the creation of a pattern, a repetition compulsion, uh, something like that. You described it earlier as the matador thing. That was a perfect way to describe what I'm describing as an orbit. This thing that you keep on doing okay. it, and it, it's you. You can even recognize it while you're doing it. You can be like, "I'm going to do this," and then this next thing is going to happen. I'm going to be really mad, and I'm going to do it again. You know, I'll get over it, and then I'll I'll start the whole process one more time. 
Yeah, th- this is me going to uh, purchase these cookies I I really like ah. late at night and then beating myself up for it, but it's still like being caught in this compulsion, this repeating pattern of like constantly like going, I know I can't have this, then I have it. Then <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, you're, you're, you're transgressing at that point, right? By getting the cookies. And it's a it's an understandable transgression, and then afterwards, I don't know. You feel you know guilt and shame or whatever. God damn it! <laughs> like, oh, I'm such a bad person for doing this thing. Yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, pathetic. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting, even in that. Like, um, here's a a, a, a different kind of like thing, but it it sort of illustrates, I think, the um the unconscious sort of coming into to, to life here. So I, I really. One one of my my guilty pleasures is Marvel superhero movies. I I think they're great. I worked in comic book stores when I was a kid, um, and seeing these superhero movies is a lot of fun for me. And uh, you know, I I run, I work out, I try to keep my body in a certain level of you know physical shape, and so on and so forth. What I'll I'll do, this goes along with watching the Marvel movies. I'll I'll Google the workouts and diets of the actors in those films, and I'll be like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna have one of those bodies. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. And then what happens is like I'll do it for a stupidly short period of time, a day, maybe two, maybe three, a week tops. Like that's really stretching it. And then like somebody will order pizza. And I'll do that, you know, so it's, it, it, and this is a stable thing with me. And I, I think that it's because unconsciously, I actually don't want to have that body. Consciously, I do. But unconsciously, I know that if I had it, I would have to maintain it. And I don't want to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's not, <laughs> I, I really don't want that kind of responsibility. <laughs> so that's, that's a potential unconscious thing. I mean, I'm talking about it consciously now, so that's wrong, clearly, but it kind of gets the point across. Yeah, yeah no, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's the, this idea here that um, uh, we're always going to be symptomatic. Like uh, this is an idea in Lacanian psychoanalysis. Part of the – when I said that cure is always a byproduct, one of the things that might constitute a cure is that somebody stops trying to like be at war with their symptom and trying to get rid of it, demanding that somebody cure their symptom. And instead they start to desire to have their symptom in some kind of way that ultimately works out for them. It's interesting. It's cool. Like I keep on doing this thing. I wonder why. Now I have a mystery to solve. That's that's nice. Um, but they'll keep doing it, and and they're largely okay with it. Ultimately, uh, they learn to they learn the satisfaction of dissatisfaction and start to live more from that point of view and perspective and stuff. And that's being in an orbit around these things. Now, if things get really messed up, you know, you can your or if you slow down, you can start to be pulled back into the black hole. Likewise, if you spin up too fast, you can start to spin off into the void and go into psychosis. Interesting. Hmm. Um, what else? Uh, what else did we want to cover? I think we kind of covered a lot of the the notes we were discussing, largely speaking. Yeah. I, I will. I, I can summarize some stuff real quick here. Like the circles that I mentioned earlier. Like there's social intelligibility, social life, the commitments that go with it. That's in alignment with demand and dusting and kind of uh, what I'm, I'm calling the death drive. And then on the the other side, there's the unconscious, 
which is associated with desire and object ah. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time talking about object ah. Object ah is that it's it's as soon as you get something, you have this brief, you know, kind of like bit of oh, it's so great, I got this thing. You you eat the cookies or whatever, and you're like, yeah, that was good. And then you're dissatisfied shortly in short order, so that you can get interested in getting the cookies again, <laughs> like you know, um, <laughs> right? And doing that—that's object. So ah. funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. But but you can enjoy it, right? Like you you can also be tortured by it if you want to, you know, but you don't have to be. And and that would be the the way that those things work. I I think that my clinical work, another principle that I hope animates the things that I do is trying to work uh kind of like for the unconscious in a sense, right? Like everybody who comes to talk to me has an unconscious. And in that unconscious is a bunch of repressed stuff, a bunch of repressed signifiers, a bunch of repressed desires. And they're there. They're just repressed. The person doesn't know that they're there. And they, they because they're repressed, they're still like active, kind of playing out in this person's life in different ways that they don't understand. And, and I find that if I can encourage the unconscious to kind of like speak up um, and, and be understood somewhat, then what I end up doing is sort of like moving people from demand to desire. And when I do that, that disempowers the death drive. It helps the person be in a stable orbit. It helps the person not be pulled into um, the death drive, not act in destructive ways, ways that hurt their relationships, their careers, their bodies, et cetera. I did actually mention or want to mention, so, what was it like this this death drive is kind of tied to being i guess in being part of the symbolic order lacan would refer to it as so the death drive being like that that return to this kind of pre pre-linguistic state where you're not having to deal with that that lack or that that sort of generates desire yeah, I mean, I, I think that Lacan thought different things about this at different times. I guess that's you know, true. so like <laughs> the the early and kind of like maybe even the middle Lacan was really interested in using the symbolic order um, as a as a tool um, to help people, right? So the the idea was that you you want to help kind of like pull things into the symbolic order, and I think that 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 actually has an, an, an immense amount of clinical value doing that, like pulling things into the symbolic order. But the the very last stages of his life, he was more interested in the real than he was in anything else. One of the things that he said that is is really, really fascinating to me, and I, I think about it a lot, he said that, that life is a whole in the real. And my understanding of that, which might be a misunderstanding, but my understanding of it is that uh, you know, it, it it eventually the universe is going to go through this thing called heat death. It's going to be nothing. There's going to be no more usable energy. Entropy wins. That's the real, right? It's nothing. It's no thing in the Heideggerian sense, I guess, right? It's uh, uh, absolute nothingness forever. That's the real. Those are concepts that if I, I think if you really think about that, if you take those concepts and integrate them if, if into your subjectivity, they're not just objects, but they're they're things that you think about. They fuck you up. Like there's no way they can't, um, because life 
the the fact that there are things instead of no things uh life is a hole in that the life is a hole in the real and the death drive is something which is bringing the real back into our lives uh it's a touch of the real ultimately and yeah we can we can kind of like shore up our ways of um coping with the the real through yeah. use, using the symbolic and, and that can be very effective but it's never going to actually beat the real. Like the symbolic isn't going to trumpet. The the real will always be there, lurking, waiting, <laughs> happening, no matter what we do. And that's that's really hard. Um, like that's something that actually like truly, literally keeps me awake at night. I will be drifting off to sleep, and I'll think about like the 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 heat death of the universe, and I, it just it wakes me up, and I I I'm all sorts of like in a bad way because of it that came up on an episode of why theory mcgowan told a story about one of his students who who had this reaction to the heat death of the universe and he said that she like actually you know integrated it into her subjectivity and when i heard that story it was amazing for me because i was like somebody else goes through this this is great i'm not the only crazy person who's terrified of the real the real man mm-hmm when keeping it real goes wrong. Yeah, I mean that's uh, one of my my uh, <laughs> my sort of like things they say to people sometimes is keep it fake. <laughs> uh, I think that kind of covers uh, the bulk of the I think Lacanian concepts or discussion we wanted to have. And unless you had anything to add, no, I mean I, I it was really fun to talk about all of this stuff. I yeah, I really sure. really you know just want to say thank you for the opportunity because you know I mean it. it Believe it or not, there's not a whole lot of people you come across in your your day to day life who want to have these sorts of conversations. So when I do get to have these conversations, it's really fun for me. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I, and I really appreciate it. Oh yeah, I think I appreciate you uh, indulging me. Um, I do want to ask you though before before we do for real wrap things up. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about working in in, in comic book stores, and I had about oh, it's been probably. I don't know, three or four years ago that I got back into comic books. So I'm just kind of curious, maybe some stuff that you like or Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, you mentioned Marvel stuff too. There's a, did you get into the FX had the series Legion at all by chance? You know what? I I kept on meaning to get into Legion and I I don't get to watch a lot of TV. I wish that I got to watch more. I really do because I enjoy watching TV, but I don't have time and right. uh, the very little that I do, I don't know. Like I, I, it, I, I actually downloaded all of the episodes of Legion. And so I have them, like I can watch them anytime I want. I just don't have the time to watch it, but I want to. I'd be curious to kind of see, cause I, I need to rewatch it again through kind of like the, the lens of psychoanalysis because obviously like, I don't, I'm sure you know a little bit about the character yeah himself right and so the show kind of starts out in this very in a clinical setting it's like i don't know what it would i don't know it's a clinic of some kind like it's it's not voluntary mm-hmm. that the people are there and so that's kind of so he's there thinking he's like a schizophrenic and so forth and then they have and you mentioned too i think in our prep for the episode these kind of group sessions um and so they do have these like kind of group sessions where like the, I don't know, the therapist, I'm not sure. They don't really get in the specifics of exactly 
you know what that is, but there's kind of a group discussion on what they have going on. So I don't know, I'd be interested to get someone's take who's kind of steeped in psychoanalysis. Yeah, I mean to get their kind of reading on the on the series because it is about like largely about this kind of idea of mental health. Mm-hmm. That'd be fun and schizophrenia and so forth. So that helps me actually be more motivated to watch it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I think really the first season largely takes place at least starting out in in this kind of therapy, whatever this asylum is probably the wrong word, but uh, I don't know. It's kind of very much around that world. And then it kind of expands from there, but the first season definitely, I think would be interesting to get kind of a, a Lacanian reading of, you know, if you're, you're into those sorts of things, there's a movie called mad to be normal. Have you heard of this? I have not. It's got David Tennant, uh, Elizabeth Moss in it. And it's a biopic. It's about a guy named R.D. Lang, who uh, had a very experimental sort of like mental health facility called Kingsley Hall in England. He was part of the anti-psychiatry movement. Uh, a lot of times he kind of gets lumped in or, or Guattari gets lumped in with him. They they get lumped in together. And uh, there's a great that scene in this this film where a kid has been brought there against his will who's schizophrenic and he has this crazy symptom where he's like, he's constantly counting. Like he won't stop counting and he, he's, he's like marking the walls and he won't eat. He won't sleep because he's counting and that people have put him in all these different facilities and they've used medications. They've done electric shock therapy. They've done all this stuff to try to get this kid to snap out of the counting. And, uh, Artie Lang is like, I'm going to let him do it. I'm going to let him count. And people are like, you you can't just like let him count. And he's like, I'm gonna let him count. And he's like, he's working something out. Like there's there's something happening here. He has a desire. I want him. I want him to let him sort of like follow his desire as opposed to like an insert some kind of demand. Don't count because that doesn't work. And uh, the kid like, I mean, he's not eating, so he's getting less and less healthy. And eventually, they're like, maybe we do have to like stop him <laughs> because this is getting out of control. And then like one day, he just like comes down to the kitchen and he goes, I'd really like a sandwich please and uh lang is like oh this is like this kid's never said a coherent sentence and he, he's like why aren't you counting and he goes oh the the voices have been telling me you know that i need to count all the way up to a million and back without stopping and i've been trying to do it for years and everybody kept on stopping me and i had to got, start over at one again all this time <laughs> and since so i've been here you just like kind of like let me do it and I, I i succeeded like i got all the way up to a million and all the way from a million to one and so now I'm done. The voices are happy. And, and like that was his thing, right? Like, uh, and that's probably a dramatization. I don't know if that's a real story or how real yeah. it is. But uh, it's also one of those things that illustrates, I think, the extent to which so many institutions function on the, the basis of demand as opposed right. to trying to understand desire. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Uh, I'm also kind of curious. I've been thinking about this a lot um, is – like the art, the Grant Morrison Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. Like I'd, I'd like to go back and read that again now that I have, I've thought about psychoanalysis since the last time I read it. Cause I wonder my roommate's been mentioning, and I know this was a thing was like for Morrison was this idea of like the Joker being, he's, he's not insane. He's, he's super sane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Super sanity. He, he's somebody who actually gets the real. Yeah, like it touched him and held on a little bit too long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I but I, 
Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was uh, I was I was just going to interrupt. But if you had something more, I, go ahead on that on that note. I haven't read that in so many years, so it, uh, I yeah. just don't remember. Uh, Grant Morrison is one of my favorite comic book writers, though. He did a run on the X Men, which is my favorite X Men run. Actually, that's not true. It's my second favorite X Men run. The Chris Claremont run is my favorite, but I have Grant Morrison was just such a cool romp. It, it was great. Uh, if you ever get a chance to to read it, I'd I'd recommend it. Even if you don't yeah, like superhero I, books, it's really cool. No, I kind of cut my teeth when I was a young kid. Um, X Men is kind of what I love the most, and so I do actually have the Grant Morrison X Men. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan so much of the. Is it Frank Quietly yeah. that does the art for that? the The art's kind of weird, but I'm definitely I've been meaning to read it forever. But it's in it's amidst like a huge stack of other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Now I look back at this. I mean, like I remember when I was a kid, the way I experienced media was so different than the way I experience it now as an adult. Um, like comic books and films and stuff were important to me in my youth in a way that they are not important to me now. Um, it, it, and that's weird. I don't know. Like I, I there's maybe something there, maybe a, some other time we can talk about that because it, that might be kind of fun, but uh, it's weird. I have, see for me, narrative, I don't know. I kind of lose myself in narratives. And I think in particular film and television, but also, you know, books, as well comic books i think are an easy one uh just because it's a visual medium too but i mean i like i'm immersed mm-hmm. in it so like i'm super invested in i don't know there's something about that i don't know what it is that i'm attracted to about that but it's definitely i i really i get into my stories i love it i love to kind of lose myself in that imaginary or the the fantasy element of it yeah, I mean, that, and that's really interesting too, right? Like, uh, I think that comics are a great example of objet a in a lot of ways, um, because oh, for sure, you, know, you, yeah. you get a you get a an issue of a comic. Okay, great, you read it. It probably ends on something which is a, a cliffhanger of sorts. You watch an episode of television, same thing. Uh, that, that's actually a, a good example of why to do a short session for that same reason, right? They they end episodes of television not on a nice note they they end it at like the point of disruption where it's like yeah. what's going to happen it's like that's where they end it because then you're thinking about that and that's sort of the same thing that you do in a psychoanalytic session actually when you you punctuate the session by ending it on a on a particular note also you'll appreciate this so i tend to i like the more one shot comics typically a little bit more so than like a series like x men now because it it's kind of like that object, ah, that matador thing again, because mm-hmm. all the storylines are constantly getting rebooted and, and changed. There's no like, there's no closure. There's no finality the way that there is. And like something like Watchmen, right? Like that was a self-contained story. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I find a lot more satisfying than, than some sort of like contrived plot device to like, you know what I mean? Yeah, Bring yeah. back a dead character or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. I, it's weird. Like, I, I noticed that British TV is like that, too. Like, British TV tends to do these, like, self-contained things. Like, Broadchurch was, you know, a couple of seasons that was done. Luther. Um, there, there's tons of British shows. They don't do the thing that you see with a lot of American shows where they're just going to, like, keep on making it, like, as long as there's money to, to be made by right. making it. 
Yeah, um, like Star Wars, I think, would be a good example of that. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I I mean, I think of shows like ER or, or like oh, yeah, okay. NYPD Blue or something. Yeah, like th- those things, because they, they went on forever, right? It's like, it, they're so formulaic, but, the, you know, there's still money. People still watched it, and the advertisers yeah. kept on buying the time. So they were. I guess so, soap operas are the ultimate example of that. Yeah, and but I mean those those British comic writers like Moore, you know, who did Watchmen and uh, Grant Morrison, uh, who who you were referring to earlier, they're they're all Brits, right? I wonder if that's just like a British thing that they do yeah. differently, where they they imagine like um, a story is a, a a particular like unit differently than many, uh, I guess, like uh, American sorts of people do. But. Anyways, you know, I don't want to keep you up. We are we are spending our Saturday evening together. Yeah, I guess uh, r- real quarantine hours here for sure. But let me go ahead and and let you plug your your couple of podcasts and really anything else you want to plug social media, anything like that, any writing or you know whatever projects you got. Feel free to to throw those out there. Sure. So I I kinda, I'll I'll talk about three things that I'm uh, four things. I'll talk about four things I'm doing. So there's the clinical work that I do. Uh, if what I said sounded like it was something that you were interested in, especially if you're in like the uh, Chicagoland area, um, you just go to neilgorman.com. You can find out how to get in touch with me for clinical stuff there. Um, I that That's something that I, I do. Um, I can't always work with everybody. Sometimes it doesn't work from a scheduling point of view. Sometimes it doesn't work from like a clinical point of view. That's just like the, the chemistry isn't there or something. But um, I, I like getting new patients. So that's one thing. Uh, second thing is there's this thing eventually one day it will see the light of day. I kind of, I told, made reference to it in our conversation. I'm trying to write something right now, uh, which is sort of like a beginner's guide to psychoanalytic concepts. And I'm writing it from a clinical point of view, not from like a pop cultural point of view. And, uh, my ideal audience for that will be people who are graduate students or just kind of people who are, are really interested in psychoanalytic concepts generally. Uh, but probably I, I teach graduate students in a, in a social work program, so I'm, I'm kind of writing it for them because I find when I teach this stuff, there isn't a great text, and so I'm trying to kind of like make the text that I would like to use. It's 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 slow going, um, but one day it, it will be done, and um, maybe before then I'll release bits and pieces of it out into the wild. Um, then I do the two podcasts that I mentioned before, From 78, which is you can find at, uh, the URL is weird, it's it's F-R-O-M, number seven, number eight, dot com, and uh, Inform podcast, which you can get to by going to uh, inform.neilgorman.com. And that's the podcast I do with my co-host, Jared, and uh, that's been a lot of fun. It's more of a, a conversation like what we did here. Um and that's it. I don't know what else I would like to plug. There probably are things, but I'm repressing them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. Well, once again, uh, Neil Gorman, uh, before we do close out, I just want to thank you, but I want to let our listeners know, once again, if you feel so inclined to, to help your boy out, uh, you can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Uh, follow the the podcast twitter at unconscious hh and follow us on instagram as well at unconscious hh but this will be machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry signing off for the week the very rules of eating of
auf Negativität in Singularität. Thank you. 